Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey there. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Redemption. My name is Byron. I get the great privilege to serve here as the lead pastor and church planter. If you're a guest, I want to say welcome. Thank you so much for coming and hanging out with us today as we continue our sermon series through the book of James, Bold Words from Jesus' Brother. And today we're going to have some bold words. And the words for today are blessings and curses. And James is going to talk to us about the power of our words because what we say, it really does matter. And so before we jump into the sermon today, let's go ahead and open up in prayer and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son, Jesus, who is the word. Lord, that he has come and he has revealed your word to us, that you, that you love us and that you save us and that you redeem us. Father, we pray that as we get this word in our hearts, that it would overflow into our lives and that people would see it and they would know that you are good and they would know that we are your people because of the words in which we speak. Lord, let us be people of the book. Let us be people of the word. So I ask that Holy Spirit, you would encourage, inspire us to be able to apply this to our lives so we can live differently in the midst of the world. And we pray all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, normally when you come to redemption, you'll get to hear me yell at you. Okay, but today you get to hear me yell at me. Okay, and so I'm going to preach this sermon mostly to myself, and then I'm going to invite you to listen in, and then at the end, we're going to respond together. Now, I love to preach the Bible, and I love preaching straight through books of the Bible. It's one of my, my favorite things, and so if you are new to redemption, like this is kind of the bread and butter and the way in which we study the Bible together. So we, we pick a book, and then we study the book, and so we, we go through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line, chapter by chapter, and we just spend some time studying the book, and so right now we're in the book of James. We're in week nine of a 15-week series studying the book of James. Now, sometimes Sometimes we'll do um, a topical series. So like every January, we do a series over a spiritual emphasis. And so sometimes we just talk about topics. And sometimes we do what's called textual preaching, where we pick a chunk or a section or a theme of the Bible. And then we just spend some time studying through that. So like last year, we did the parables. And so that's textual. But the main way which we love to preach the Bible here at Redemption is what's called expository preaching. I know that's a big fancy word. Y'all don't know what it means. But it just means verse by verse, line by line through the Bible. Here's, here's the reason that I love to teach this way, because one, it forces me as your pastor to preach the full counsel of God's word. Okay, I can't just pick and choose what I like and then just to talk about that. Right? I have, to, I have to preach the entire Bible and the full counsel of God, because you know there is more in this book than John 3:16 and the Psalms. Okay, there's more in there. Now, sometimes the Psalms are a little bit crazy, but there is more in this book than just John 3, 16. So we, we got to talk about it, which leads us to number two. It forces me as your pastor to consider sections of the scripture that I might or we might be a little bit uncomfortable with. And today is going to be one of those sections. So like I said at the beginning, all right, today I'm preaching at myself. So I'm going to preach to me, and then y'all get to listen, and then we're going to respond together. So what does James have to say to your pastor? Very important. Here's what he says. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Got your Bibles? Okay, here's what it says. Not many of you should become teachers. Oh, crap. Dang it. Not many of you right, should become teachers. You see what I mean? He's, he's talking 
to me, right? And this is how I know that this is God's word, because if this was a self-help book or if this was a book of good advice, then it would be like, no, you should totally be a teacher. Like, what's the worst that's going to happen? You're amazing. You're awesome. You're so special and gifted and talented. You should become a teacher because, you know, I mean, why not? If that's really what you want, James is like, no, no, not, not, not many of you, right, should become teachers. And he goes on, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Now, when I was 23 years old, that's when I was called into ministry. And I'll be honest with you, I was terrified, like absolutely terrified. It was the last thing that I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I barely liked church, let alone wanted to spend the rest of my life serving a church. And so when God called me into ministry, I was like, nope, that's not me. That's not what I want to do. I'm just going to kind of go and do my own thing. And so I did what any God-fearing, passive-aggressive man would do. I ignored it. And I thought, maybe if I just ignore him, eventually he'll, he'll go away and he'll, he'll kind of leave me alone. But the longer I ignored him, the more I resisted him, the more I kind of ran away from him, the more he hunted me down, he dragged me down, he called me and pursued me, and I could not shake it, and I could not get away with it. And so, so eventually, in a moment of weakness, I told my wife, and I said, hey, Ashley, babe, I think that I'm called into ministry. And then she was terrified. And so now we're both terrified and we're trying to figure out what does this mean for us to become pastors and become into ministry? I mean, we, we didn't know what to expect. Do we have to, do we have to like, you know, take a vow of poverty? Like, do, do we, are we going to ever get a house? Are we going to have a family? Do we have to move away? Do we have to go to some expensive private college? Like, what, what does this mean for us as we enter into ministry? And so we just began to kind of pray about it. And, and, and as we prayed over it, then the Lord began to call Ashley. And Ashley sensed the call. And so we went and we talked to our pastor. And he was a good man. He loved the Lord. He loved us. And he had a big love for the church. And so we went to our pastor and said, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Kind of here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I think that the Lord is wanting us to do. And, and he, he prayed over us. And then he, he discerned the call on our lives too. But he said, you're not ready. Hey, obviously, definitely not ready. I am mean, a 23-year-old, newlywed dude. Like, I don't know, you know, what's going on. I barely even understand the Bible. Definitely not ready. And so he said, you're going to need to be trained. You're going to need to spend some time. And there's some things that God's going to need to do in your life. And so here's what we did. We committed. So we said, okay, God, I don't know what this is going to look like for us. I don't really know what you want to do, but, but wherever you lead us, wherever you call us, wherever we are supposed to go, we're going to trust you and we're going to follow you. And then we just, we just committed. So anytime from that day forward, when the doors were open, like we were at the church. So we started serving in the church. We got involved in community groups in the church. We started community groups outside of the church. We started to tithe, and they started to put me in the youth group to work with some youth kids, which was terrible, by the way. But every time I did it, my heart began to grow for the church. And every step I took, every next step that we made, every time our hearts, it, it, it began to grow for the church. And so we're serving in the church. And, and then we started taking some Bible classes. And then I got credentialed through the Assemblies of God. And I'm growing. And then we moved to Houston and we joined a church plant. And so for about three years, we just set up and tore down churches, just like our surf team does here. We unloaded a trailer. We moved stuff out of the back. We had people at our house sweeping up cigarette butts and picking up beer bottles in the parking lot. Yeah, I did that for about three years. And then became a pastor, and then I started serving the church in that role, and then the Lord moved us to New York, and by God's grace, we got to plant a church in, in New York, and it was amazing, but after a year, we came back home, and we were like, well, what do we do now? Where do we go now? God, what's best next for us? What do you have? And then the Lord began to put a 
stirring in our hearts to plant a new Christ-centered, life-giving church here for the city of Beaumont. And so that's what we did. And so we started gathering people in a team. We started getting ready to launch the church. And here we are now, right here, downtown Crocker Street, Sunday morning, two gatherings, full room, lots of people meeting Jesus. All of that to say this, that was nine years that was nine years. Like, I could have become a doctor in nine years and made a lot more money. Like, that's nine years of God just beating the pride out of me, beating the humility in me, breaking me, building me up to make me into the man that I am today. Nine years. And I pray to God that in nine years, I'll be a better man. And then nine years later, I'll be a better man. And that God is always continually working on me, working in me, and working through me until the day that I meet Him. But nine years. And in those nine years, here's, here's what I've seen. I've seen people meet Jesus. I've seen people deny Jesus. I've seen people come to faith. I've seen people walk away from the faith. I've seen people healed, and I've also seen people die. I've seen people get married. I've seen people get divorced. I've seen families be reconciled. I've seen, I've seen families be torn apart. Right? I've sat with mothers who have given birth to their baby, and I've also sat with mothers who have had miscarriages and abortions. I've sat through some of the highest moments of joy in people's life, and I've also seen the deepest moments of depravity and pain and the brokenness of the world. And here's what I know. This is what I know to be true, that no matter what we walk through, no matter what people go through, that God is always faithful and he always loves his people. But here's, here's the truth. Here's the truth. This is not a job. What I do, it's not a job. This is not just a paycheck for me. I'm not a professional. I'm a, I'm, I'm a pastor. And those of you who desire to become teachers and leaders and pastors, this is not a job. This is a calling. This is, this is not just something you clock in and clock out. This is, a, this is a lifestyle. There is no vacations for your pastors. And even if they do get a vacation, they're sitting on the beach and they're, they're, they're with their family and they're still reading systematic theologies, trying to block out any email and problem that might happen in the church. You can just ask my wife because we've had lots of fights about that. This is not just a job. This is a calling for those of us who desire to become teachers. And I, I say all of this because I know that some of you, you have this desire to become a leader or to become a teacher or to become a pastor. Some of you, you, you want to you get involved in the serve team. Some of you want to lead different areas of the serve team. Some of you want to go to grow class and find out what is your next step when it comes to following Jesus. Some of you, you, you desire to become deacons. And some of you men, you're going you're gonna to long to become an elder and to become a pastor in the church. And for those of you who are in that place, I'm going to tell you the same thing that I wish my pastor would have told me and the same thing that James is saying today. Don't do it. Don't do it. Now, it's not to say that I don't love my job because I absolutely do love my job. And I'm not trying to say that I'm, that I'm feeling down because I've never been more satisfied or more fulfilled in my life than I am today. But if you can imagine yourself doing anything other than this, go. Please, go. Because that means that you're not called. But if in your heart there is a burning passion, if there's a fire in your bones, that the gospel must be preached, that people who are far from Jesus must be reached, then by all means, join the ministry. By all means, become a teacher. By all means, become a leader. But here's the deal. You're going to need to be trained. Because why? Because those of us who are teachers will be judged with a greater strictness. That at the end of our life, we're all going to be judged by God. 
that we're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to judge us and some are going to be judged with the greater strictness and we're all going to be held accountable for our words. And James today is talking about the power of our words, that what we say, how we live, it actually really does matter. And as a teacher, you're going to be accountable to God for what you teach, but you're also going to be accountable to God for the people whom you teach. So I'm going to be accountable to God. Quick word to those who desire to become teachers. You're going to be accountable to God for what you teach. Now this word, this, this is, this is the word of God. This is God's word. This word tells us who God is, what God has done, and how we are supposed to live in light of it. And this word reveals who God is and how he speaks to us. And so think about it. If, if God is real, and this is God's word, then this word governs our world. That as Christians, we are to be people of the book and that we live under the authority of Scripture in our life. This is not opinion. This is not speculation. This is not public opinion. This is not Byron-isms. This is the word of God. And my job as your pastor is to teach and preach and serve the word of God into our congregation. So that way you can know who God is and how we are to live in light of it. And that's my job. And now here's the deal. You don't do my performance review. At the end of my life, I'm going to stand before God and he's going to do my performance review. Now, listen, like you, you can vote with your feet. Like if I step on some toes, you can say, I'm not going to come back. Or, or if I say something that kind of offends, you cannot tithe or give this week. And, and that's fine. That's your prerogative. You, you can do those things. But you're not going to give my performance review. God is going to give my performance review. And some of you, you congratulate. Amen, Byron. Like, that's a great sermon. Your jokes were kind of funny today. Like, good job. That's amazing. But at the end of my life, those things, they don't matter. All that matters is when I stand before God that I preach the word. That's my job. And I'll tell you when this began to scare me. Like when I first noticed this was standing here on this stage, the very first sermon that I preached here. It was in our preview gatherings before the church even launched. We had like 20 people on our team. And, and, and we're doing these preview services and I'm preaching through the core values of our church. And so I'm talking about what it means for us to be Christ-centered as a church. And I'm kind of working through Ephesians and I'm saying, we're planting this church because people are far from God. And if nobody reaches them, then they're going to go to hell. And so I'm going to talk about hell. And so I, I get close to my hell portion of the sermon. I could feel it building and I could feel it coming. And as I get to that place in the sermon, I skipped it. I just moved right on to the next point. Why? Because I wanted people to like me? Because I was worried about what other people were going to say? I mean, we had 20 people. What if they never came back? What if we you know, just destroyed this thing before we ever even got up on the ground? And I, I was worried about what other people had to say. And as I moved on with my sermon, the, the next I heard the voice of the Spirit speak to me. He says, what kind of church are you planting here? And I was crushed. I was I was devastated. Because I knew that what I did was wrong. And I knew that I would be held accountable for every single word that I teach. And that was the day that I determined that when I stand here on this stage, I will publicly preach and proclaim boldly the full counsel and the word of God. Because when I step off this stage, I'm going to stand before Jesus. And I'm going to give an account. And so that's my promise to you as your pastor. But that's not even the scariest part. The scariest part is I'm also going to be accountable for our church. I'm going to be accountable for, for you. For those of us who are members, I'm going to be accountable for you. Now, every single person is going to be accountable before God. Okay, Some of you are like, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to be judged. Not true. 
Even Christians are judged before Jesus called the great white throne of judgment to where Jesus distributes our rewards and blessings based upon the words we say, how we live, and how we treat others. But you're still going to be judged, not for your damnation, but rather for your rewards. And so we're going to stand before Jesus. We're going to give an account. And so you're going to be standing there and then, and then I'm going to be standing there right next to you. And whenever God speaks to you, he's going to look to me and I'm going to be like, hey, that's, you know, that's, that's my boy, all right? Um, and, and some of you, it's a, it's a great joy, right? I can't wait till I'm going to be accountable for you. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. You know, Kayla got baptized and, and JC's got these beautiful little girls. His wife's absolutely amazing. We went on a double date with them last night. Hey, hey, it's great to see you guys. Others, I don't even know what to say. I'm going to be like, I, I saw them like twice a month. Um, what happened? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm glad to see them though. But think about it. As a leader, you're going to be accountable for the people who are under you. And so whenever I, whenever I preach, whenever I get really excited, when I get really passionate, when I start to raise my voice and I, I get really loud, okay, I don't do it to shock you or to scare you. I do it because I love you, because I want to motivate you, because I want to move you to the point to where when you stand before Jesus, you can do so without fear. So when I talk about things like Satan and sin and hell and suffering, I don't do it to, to beat you up or to break you down. I do it to build you up. So on the day of judgment, when you stand before Jesus, you can do so holy and blameless without fear because you know the word of God. That's my job. And so what James is saying here is actually really just an echo of what his big brother Jesus taught. And here's, here's how Jesus says it. In Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Now, how many of you have ever said something that you immediately wish you could take back? Okay, you're going to be accountable for that. And you're going to stand before God and he's going to hold you accountable for every careless word you speak. So what James is saying is actually very important. That the words we say, they have an eternal impact on the life we live. Not just this life, but also on the next one. And so I really want to just kind of be your pastor today and talk to you about something that is extremely practical. Now, your words are powerful and your words do come with a certain weight, but this is very practical teaching. One of the most important things is the words in which we say. So oftentimes, when you come to redemption, you're going to hear me say big words. And we're going to talk a lot about things like doctrine. So I'm going to say propitiation and penal substitutionary atonement and expositional preaching. And you're going to be like, what does that mean? It isn't words. Words really matter. And so sometimes we just really need to talk about life. Today we're going to just talk about life. So here's what, here's what James says. As we jump down into verse 2, here's how James says. He talks about the words we say and the power of our speech. Verse 2, for we, okay, that, that includes me, for we, as your pastor, you in the chair, the person sitting next to you, us collectively as a church, for we all, okay, how many is all? It's everyone, right, all, like that includes you as well, okay, so don't just look at the person next to you, also look to yourself, we all stumble in many ways, how many ways? Many Many ways. That means they're a variety pack. Like we're equal opportunity offenders. We all stumble in many ways. So you stumble in one way and I stumble in another way. But we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. How many of you are perfect? 
Yeah, that's what I thought. So James is trying to set a trap for you. If anyone thinks that he doesn't stumble in what he says, then he is a perfect man, and then he is able to bridle his whole body. And so James starts off with a gotcha. He's like, I know that some of you are a little religious, and some of you think that you're pretty good, and some of you think that you're a little special, so let's just ask this question. Who's perfect? Nobody. Okay, let's move on to the next part. Then James is going to give us three illustrations about the power of our words. And these are simple illustrations, but they really do make a profound impact. And here's what he says in verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, then we guide their whole bodies. Now look at the ships also, that though they are large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest that is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. And the tongue is set upon our members, staining the whole body. That, that's a really interesting comment, that the tongue is a stain. Okay, when you say something that you immediately regret, it's out and you can't take it back. It's like whenever you spill something, when you're out to eat at a restaurant, you get into your clothes and the harder you scrub it, Right, the more you just spread it around. The more you try to justify yourself, the more you try to excuse yourself, the more you try to avoid the situation, it really just stays there. The words you say, you can't bring them back. It's like a stain setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Pretty strong words from James. That it's set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil filled with deadly poison. Okay, James is saying, isn't this amazing? Okay, look at all of these animals, lions, tigers, bears. Oh my, right, I couldn't help but I had to do it. Lions and tigers and bears, beasts of the field, like reptiles, snakes, sea creatures. Like he didn't even tell us what a sea creature is, but it sounds gnarly, right? Sea creatures. Like we can tame all of these animals, but we can't even say nice things about other people. You think about it? How many of you, you go to the zoo, right? One of my favorite things is to, to take my family to the zoo. I love going to the zoo. And, and, and when you're at the zoo, you see all of these majestic and beautiful creatures. And like, I have done amazing things. Like I have, I have pet an elephant. I've touched the tongue of a giraffe. Right? I, I mean, I, I've seen a man stick his head in the mouth of a lion, but I still can't seem to get myself to say nice things about other people. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Does anybody else find that strange that out of all the beasts, out of all of the animals in the world that we've domesticated and tamed, the most difficult, the most powerful, the most hard to tame is the beast that lives in my head. And I can't even get it to do what it is that I want it to do. No man can tame the tongue. We just say whatever we think and whatever we feel, however, whenever, there's no filter and we can't control our tongue. And so James is going to give us three illustrations to highlight this fact about the power of our words. And he talks about a bit in a horse's mouth, a ship in the ocean, and a fire in the forest. Now here's, here's the big idea. Okay, James saying small things can cause big damage. Okay, small things. Your tongue, small thing, right? It's, it's three inches long, two and a half ounces, right? Small thing cause big damage. And it's not just a word you say. Consider Twitter. 140 characters, big damage, right? So what we say really does matter. And James is going to give us these three illustrations to highlight 
this simple fact. And first, he talks about a bit in a horse. Now me, I'm not a horse person, like not really big into horses, never rode a horse, never really been around horses, just, just not my thing. When I lived in New York, people were like, hey, did you ride horses down in Texas? I was like, no, people in Texas, people in Texas do other things than, than ride horses. But here's what I do know about horses. Horses are big, horses are beautiful, and horses are strong, and horses are very large. But if you take this small little bit and you put it in the horse's mouth, you can basically steer and guide and direct this horse to do whatever it is that you want it to do. Isn't that amazing? That we can steer a horse just by this small little bit. Whenever I was teaching high school, there was a, there was a gal in my ninth grade class. She was training for the equestrian in the Olympics. That's horse riding for all the others. But she's training for the equestrian in the Olympics. And, and she could do these great things on the back of a horse. And she would love to talk about horses. She talked about horses all the time. But here's the deal about this gal. She was five foot nothing, 80 pounds. And she would climb on this horse, and she'd show me the videos, and she could make the horse like jump barrels, jump fences, she could race this horse, and she could get it to do tricks and dance. And I'm like, that, that's amazing. And here's what James is saying. This little girl can tell a horse what to do, but we can't tell our mouths what to say. Pretty convicting, isn't it? What about this? A ship in the ocean. Okay, whenever Ashley and I were... Um, Celebrating our five-year wedding anniversary, we were like, let's go on a cruise. And so we went to a cruise because when we first got married, we were pretty poor, like college poor. That's when you wish you were poor because you were so poor. So we were college poor and we wanted to go on a little honeymoon. So we didn't really have any money. So at our five-year anniversary, we're like, let's go do both. We'll celebrate our honeymoon and we'll celebrate that we haven't killed each other. And so that's what we did. And so we went on this cruise and we go down to Galveston. And this, this ship takes up the entire port of Galveston, and I didn't realize how huge these ships were. So we board on the ship. I mean, there's everything in that ship. I mean, they have casinos, they have ballrooms, they have restaurants, they have like Olympic-sized swimming pools, they have an arcade, all of these just different rooms and different events and things that you can do. And I was like, how big is this thing? And how many people do you think are on this ship? And so I looked it up, and there's 5,000 people on the ship, plus crew, so possibly about 8,000 people who are on this ship all at the same time. That's basically the population of Orange. Okay, now, the ship was a lot nicer than Orange, but still, <laughs> it was the population of Orange all floating together in the middle of the ocean. Now, how was that ship steered? One man. One man behind a wheel, and it's steered by a small rudder. The rudder of a ship is about one thousandth the size of the ship. And that one man stands behind this wheel and he leads and guides and he directs and holds the life of all of those people. Now, what if that captain decided, you know, I don't really feel like going to work today. What if that captain was like, I'm having a moment. <laughs> what if the captain just got drunk and was like saying and doing and whatever he wanted? Right. All of our lives would be in danger. So the words you say, they don't only just affect your life, they also affect the lives of others. Consider the ship in the ocean. And so in your life, you could build this big, grand, great, glorious life, and you could think you're so awesome, you think you're so special, and that you're untouchable. Okay, but one slip of the tongue can shipwreck everything. The third he gives us is like a fire in the forest. Now, this isn't just a small fire in your fireplace. It's a fire in the forest. And how does the fire get started? One little spark, one small little 
fire. Sets a massive forest fire. I was interested to see what the largest forest fire in U.S. history is, and it's the Peshtigo Forest Fire in 1871. It burned like 3 million square acres, 2,000 miles, and it killed 1,500 people. Caused major damage. And you know how historians say the fire was started? A camper. That one morning a camper woke up. He didn't put out his campfire adequately enough, put some dirt over it, packed his stuff up, and then left. And over the course of the time, the embers still burned, picked up by the wind, caused this massive forest fire. Now here's the question. Do you think he intended to do that? Do you think he woke up that morning and was like, I'm going to burn this thing to the ground. I'm going to go down in the history books. I'm going to kill 1,500 people. No, it was an accident. But it still happened nevertheless. And so in our lives we say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. It was just a slip of the tongue. It's just one small thing. I, I wish, you know, uh, it's just one comment. It's just one remark underneath my breath. I didn't think anybody was going to know it. You shouldn't be so sensitive. See, it doesn't matter our intentions. It matters the actions. James says that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness and that is set on fire by hell. You think, I'm a Christian, I'm not going to hell, but you can go down to hell, you can grab fire, come back up, and you can unleash it on other people. Our words really do matter, and our words have a profound impact, not only on our lives, but also on the lives of others, and our words reflect back on the gospel and the church itself. This, this is profound. This, this dawned on me, just a personal illustration, this dawned on me while I was preparing uh, for this sermon, and when it hit me, I was like, whoa. I didn't realize that that was something that's in my life. And so let me tell you a story. Um, high school is the worst. Amen? Amen? Like, it's just an awkward, terrible time for everybody. Okay? Uh, I mean, your body's going through changes. You don't know who you are, where you fit in. You don't really know who your friends are. It's just, it's just awkward for everyone. And oftentimes, in high school, sometimes the people who are supposed to help you, they can actually hurt you. And the people that you trust, they can let you down. And that's what happened to me. I remember it was my 10th grade algebra teacher. Her name was Miss Watson. I don't remember any other teacher's name, but I do remember her name. It was Miss Miss Watson. Now, I've told you before that I grew up in a Christian school, but in 10th grade, I transferred into um, a different school, a public school. And so I'm going to this public school. Now, in my previous school, I, I, I was pretty good. Like, I, I wasn't A on a roll, but I wasn't D on a roll. And I, I could do my homework, and I could, you know, figure out math problems. I knew the quadratic equation and the, you know, long division and first outer, inner, last foil. Like, I could do all of that, and I, I was pretty good. And so when I transferred into this other school, this certain teacher, she had a different way in which she wanted us to do problems. And so I would do my homework, and then she would count it wrong. I'm like, how do you count that wrong? Like, I got the answer right. She thought I was cheating or not showing my work or doing all these other things. And so I'd turn in my homework, and she'd count it wrong again. I'd turn in my homework, and then she'd count it wrong again. And so I'm doing pretty poor in this class, and I'm feeling a little discouraged. I'm feeling a little... You know, defeated in the class. And so she calls me up to the front of the stage one day, or front of the, the classroom to write on the whiteboard and answer this question. And so I'm like, this is my moment of vindication. I'm going to show her that I know what I'm doing and I'm not cheating. And so I go up to the, to the whiteboard and I kind of answer the question and then she marks it wrong. I'm like, look, lady, I don't know what you want from me. Like, I, I don't understand. I'm doing the answer right. I, I don't get it. To which she looked at me and I kid you not, she said, are you stupid? in front of the entire class. And I'm like, this lady just called me stupid. 
And I turned to look at all the other classmates, and they were shocked too, and they didn't know what to say or what to do, and nobody jumped to my defense, and so I just put my marker down. I went back, sat in my, my chair, I put my head down, and I just slept. I slept all that class, and to be honest, I slept all the way through high school, right? I failed algebra. I got put in remedial math, like math on wheels, and then like, um, and, and so, and, and then I barely passed high school. I graduated in the bottom 10% of my class, so no scholarships for me. And, and, then I, and then I took some time off, and then I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to college. And so I went back to college, and I did pretty decent. And then I met Ashley, and then we got married, and then we went to you know, Bible classes, and then we got our credentials, and then we started planting churches. And then we came back here, and we planted another church, and then we had a baby, and I decided, you know what, I'm not crazy enough, let's go back to college. And so I recently just re-enrolled into school, and I'm talking to my entrance um, advisor, and we're going over my classes and the prerequisites needed and everything that uh, I need for graduation and for my college. And she says, everything looks good. You got a pretty good GPA. Everything else is going to transfer in. Only one question. You still haven't taken the required math. Is there a reason? To which I say, I'm terrible at math. Listen, I'm 32 years old. And because something that someone said to me when she was having a bad day 20 years ago has still impacted and affected the way in which I see myself. But this isn't just like, oh, I'm terrible at math. This has profound implications on me. How I graduated from high school, how well I did in college, how I see myself as a husband. It, it could impact the, my, my little girl's future because of my income and resources and wealth. And it even it even impacts me as I stand here on this stage as your pastor when I study and get ready to prepare the word because I think something about myself that someone said 20 years ago and it's not true. And some of us, we have bought into and we have listened to lies that other people have said about us and God says no. That's not true. That's not who you are. That's not who I say that I am. But the words that we say can create an identity in ourselves. And the words that other people speak over us. And so this is very powerful, amen? Very practical too. So James wants us to consider the practical applications in which we can consider the words we say. So let's just get down into it. Let's just, let's just open it up and let's just see what this means for us. Husbands and wives. How do you speak to one another in your home? How do you speak to your spouse? Because the way your spouse and you communicate really determines the house in which you live. Communication is a demonstration of affection. So husbands, how do you speak to your wives? Are you encouraging of her? Do you compliment her? Hey, babe, you know, you're doing a great job. Thank you for working hard. Thank you for taking care of the kids. How, how do you speak to your wife? Are you building her up so that she can flourish as a woman? Or do you demean her? Do you speak over her harsh words? Do you criticize her? Do you complain about her? Do you raise your voice to her? Do you raise your hand to her? How do you speak to your wife? Do you speak in life? Wives, how do you speak to your husbands? After a long day of work, when he, when he comes in and he's, and he's tired, is it a place of encouragement for your husband? Do you say, thank you for providing for me? When you love him in such a way that, that you would submit under him, not in a way that is demeaning towards you, but in a way that is God-honoring and glorifying for your, for your family. Wives, how do you speak into your husbands? Do you gossip? Do you criticize? Do you complain? Do you go behind his back? How do we talk? The words we say for our families, it really does matter. And that goes down into our children. So parents, those of us who are parents, how do you, how do you speak to your kids? Because you know your kids are watching. Your kids are listening, and they do hear what you say. And what you say really determines 
the way in which they live and their identity and their destiny. And so parents, how do you speak over your kids? Here's what me and Ashley have recently started doing. We started praying certain words over our little girl, Esther. We, we, we picked two words that, that we think that God wants us to speak life into her, and so we pray that she would be bold and that she would have worship. Okay, and so we prophetically speak these, li- these words into the life of our little girl. And so she would be bold, that she would, she would lead many people to Jesus, that she would have a passion for the gospel, and that she would be unashamed. But we also pray that she would be a worshiper, that she would have a heart that's sensitive to the things of the Lord. So pray these words over your children. Now, this isn't my notes, but, but parents, those of you who are parents or will be parents, this week I'm going to give you a challenge. I want you to pray this week and ask the Holy Spirit to give you one word to speak over the life of your kids. And then from now on, just pray that word into your children. Speak prophetically into the life of your kids. But how do you talk towards your children? What about, what about for those of us who are in college or at, at work, when you're with your classmates? Like, how do you speak to your fellow classmates? Do you, do you help them? Do you encourage them? Or do you just ignore them and think, well, this is a waste of my time. I'm probably not going to come back here anymore. Or do you just try to fit in with them and look like an idiot just like everyone else? College people, how do you respond with your words in class or with your friends? Those of us who are working at jobs, right? How do you talk to your coworkers or to your boss? Do you say, do you, do you go and talk about your boss behind his back? Say, I'm at the dog and I can't stand him and I hope that he quits. I hope he fails. Right? Because your coworkers see that and they're not going to respect that. Because if you're talking just like them and you're bad-mouthing the boss, there's no honor in that. And it's not going to go well for you in the end. Or are you seeing work as a means of worship to where you can share the gospel with your coworkers? Because all of that, whether husbands, wives, parents, children, college, classmates, ultimately that all reflects back on the message of the church. Now, what you say in your everyday life does reflect back on our church and on the gospel. It's the way the city sees us. So if you're on Facebook and you check in on redemption and then all the rest of the week you're just, you're just ranting about everything and saying all of these nasty things or whatever, then people are going to see that and they're going to associate that with the gospel. Are you drawing the connections here? It really does matter, doesn't it? Because when our city sees our church, what is the message of our church? What do they think? Oh, this, this, this is a welcoming church. They love Jesus. They love people. There's an opportunity for people to respond to the gospel. Now, when people come in, they, they know that there is a place for them. People are very friendly. And so when a guest walks into the church and people are sharing the message of Jesus, telling their testimony, hey, here's what I love about redemption. Hey, here's an open seat. You can come sit next to me. Someone walks in, they think, oh, this is a good word. But if someone walks in and there's people gossiping and backbiting and complaining and ignoring them as they sit in their seat, here's what they're going to think. There's nothing different about the church that I couldn't get somewhere else. Like if I wanted to be ignored, I can go to a bad Mexican restaurant. But I come into the church, I'm expecting some hope. See, the message, the way that we live, it really does impact every aspect of our life. And here's, here's what I notice, is that we're very quick to take into account for other people's words what you have said about me. So I can't believe you said that. I can't believe that you would do that. That was so wrong. You hurt me so badly. You have wounded me so deeply. You've spoken evil and sinned over me. I can't believe you would do that. We're very quick to take account for the words that other people have said about us. But we tend not to take account for the words in which we have spoken over others. And so James wants us to really consider 
the words we say and the power that comes along with them. And so James has been kind of getting to one single point. He's trying to boil all of this down so that way we can know. And here's the big words that James is going to use. These are the bold words that James wants us to walk away with today. And here, here's the deal. These two words, totally different. They, 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 they are the opposite of one another. You can't have one and the other. That's not how these words work. And so here's the big words, the bold words from Pastor James. And James is going to say, blessings and curses. Just so you know, blessings and curses, totally different. All right, you can't have both blessings and curses. That's like having a girlfriend and a wife. It's not going to, it's not going to end well for you, buddy. You can't have both. You can either have blessings or you can have curses. And so here's what James is getting to. And here's how he says, with it, what's it? Our tongue, our words, our mouth, what we say. And let me say this. It's not just what you say. It's also how you say it. Because you can say the right things in the wrong way and you can still be wrong. You can still be wrong. Even though you're right, you can still cause big damage. So it's not just what you say, it's also how you say it. With your tongue, with your mouth, with your words, you bless the Lord our Father. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. I love to sing songs to Jesus. Right? I love to come to church where I sing songs to Jesus and listen to the word of Jesus. I like going to community group and talking about Jesus. I like to listen to Air One in the radio so I can sing songs to Jesus. Right? I need Jesus. My Jesus calling devotional is on my bookshelf at work. And so I just need more Jesus. Love the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my so James is like, good. So in one breath, you can bless the Lord, our Father, and you can curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. Isn't that amazing? You say, I love you, Jesus. Bless the Lord. I can't stand that person. Don't invite them to lunch. Did you see what they're wearing? You see how she raises her kids? I wish they would just leave. I have nothing in common with them. Ah, why are they coming? Do you see how we're doing this? That we can bless the Lord on Sunday and then we can curse people on Sunday. That we don't even, we don't even wait till Monday. I mean, like, we'll just curse them on Sunday. We'll just we, bless the Lord, walk out, whatever. Like, I can find myself in the parking lot on my way out here and be like, yay, Jesus, oh, what? Get out of my way, you idiot. I'm like, oh, how fickle is my heart? Do you see how this, how this works? We, we bless the Lord and then we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. I don't know if you consider this or not, but every person that you encounter in your life, whether you like them or not, whether you know them or not, whether they look like you, act like you, think like you, speak like you, or from the same country as you, every single person that you encounter in this life, is made in the image and likeness of God. That means they are worthy of dignity and value and respect and honor. Whether they're rich, poor, black, white, Latino, Asian, young, old, Democrat, Republican, straight, gay, bi, whatever. No matter if you agree with them or what they say, every single person in this world is made in the image and likeness of God. And so when we speak to them, we are to speak life, love, and truth. But love and life, because our words should be blessings. But oftentimes we find ourselves speaking life that are actually bringing 
curses to other people. And here's what, here's what James says as he continues. Verse 10, from the same mouth come blessings and cursings, my brothers. So here he's talking to us as Christians, as a church. So we say that we're a family. You say that you love Jesus, that he lives in you through the Holy Spirit, and that you're saved, involved in the church, and that you're growing in maturity and holiness and in righteousness. And so James is like, okay, good. My brothers, my sisters, okay, listen. Listen to what God is going to say. This ought not be so. That as a church, we are to be different. The way we act, the way we speak, the way we live is to be different than the way that the world is. Now, we are to be different. Now, as Christians, we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be perfect. No one's perfect. We've already seen that. We all stumble in many ways. But as a church, we are to be different. James says, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. And then he goes and he says, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. How many of you this summer, you went to Galveston, took your family on a nice little vacation, you're sitting on the beach, and then your kids are like, hey, I'm kind of thirsty. You're like, okay, let's go to the ocean and drink some water. Right? No, right? Why? Because Galveston's disgusting. And, and, and nobody even wants to get in the water, let alone get the water in their mouth because it's filled with nasty things like, like, like pollutants and salt and toxins and people don't even know what's happening. And so, no, you're not going to take your kids and put them in the ocean and, and drink from the ocean because it's not going to satisfy your thirst. But many of us, we go to the world and the ocean of the world and we expect it to satisfy us. That we're filling ourselves with things that can never bring true satisfaction. And it's overflowing into different aspects of our lives. And that's why James says, can a grapefruit grow from a, uh, a fig? Like you can't say, like, I have this awesome tree. It grows both apples and oranges. No, it doesn't. Like, that's, not the way, that's not the way this works. But many of us, that's the way we live. That we live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. And there's a difference between what we profess and what we practice. And that we want the blessings of God while, walking, while we're walking in curses. James says, this is not true Christianity. This is not the way a church is supposed to be. This is not the way that we're supposed to behave. And now immediately, some of you probably thinking a little convicted. And so you're coming up with a list of all the things that you should say. You're like, okay, well, I've said these words. I've said these words. I'm going to cross those words, right? That's a four-letter word. Can't say that. I know I've said some things to this person, so I'm just going to ignore them for a while. Maybe it'll just go away. And I, I know I've made some jokes, and they're really, really funny, but, you know, I don't know. So I'm just going to come up with this list, and here's the words I'm going to say, and here's the words I'm not going to say. That misses the whole point. See, you can come up with your list, but you're going to fail because you've been trying to live according to a list for 30 years, and it's not working yet. And so you can come up with a list, and you can try harder, and you can do better, and you can try to be a better person, but it's not going to happen because there's something deeper going on in our lives. James is really trying to hit a nerve for us. He's really going a lot deeper than just what we think. But have you ever considered why you say the things you do? Have you ever thought, like, why do I say that? Why did I do that? Why do I freak out? Why did I blow up? Why did I raise my voice to my kid? Why do I take it out on other people, the people who are closest to me? Why do I talk the way that I do? Why do I act the way that I act? Have you ever just wondered why? And then you try to control it. You try to hold it in, and 
the longer you do, the more it just builds, and then eventually you blow up all over again. See, James is really trying to get to something a lot deeper. Oftentimes in the church and in life, what we do is we, we treat the symptoms. So the words would be a symptom. But James is getting to something a lot deeper than just our symptoms. James wants to get to the source. And the source of why we say what we say is because our heart is the way that it is. See, the words are just a symptom. The heart is the, the source. The reason you say the things you say is because your heart is the way that it is. The real problem, not our tongue, the real problem is our heart. Here's how Jesus says it. He says in verse 6 of Luke, 43, uh, chapter 6, verse 45 in the Gospel of Luke, the good person of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. James is getting to something a lot deeper than just the words that we say. He wants to get down to the heart. The word heart it means the, the center, the seat, the source of all of the human condition. The word heart appears about 900 times in your Bible, and it's a huge theme, and it reveals who we are. And when you say things, when you act certain ways, your mouth betrays your heart. The real problem is not what you're saying. The real problem is who you are. The problem is here. And the more you try to control it, the more you try to hold it in, the more your mouth will expose you. See, we've all stumbled in many ways. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all stumbled in many ways, and no one is perfect. And, and so everyone in this room has said something that you wish that you couldn't say. And everyone has had someone say something to you that you wish that they wouldn't have said. Every person has hurt someone. Every person has been hurt by someone else. Every person in this room has wounded someone. Every person in this room has been wounded by someone else. Every single person but Jesus. And so this is where the gospel enters in to our lives. Because Jesus has been sinned against more than anyone else. Nobody has been hurt more so than Jesus. Nobody's been wounded more so than Jesus. Nobody's been spoken evil of more so than Jesus. Because every sin you commit, every word that you say, ultimately is an offense, is an affront, is a sin to him. Okay, the psalmist says, against you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. So when you freak out, you're really attacking Jesus. When you blow up on someone else, you're really just coming against Jesus. When you let that person have it, you're really just giving it to Jesus because everything you say, every act that you do, ultimately foremost is a sin against Jesus himself. So nobody has been spoken evil of more so than Jesus. And, and many of us, we would say, well, this is who my heart is. Well, your heart is a part of the curse. And some people, you hear that, and you're like, no, 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 no. I'm supposed to follow my heart. I need to follow my heart. The prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? It is wicked. Do not follow your heart. Your heart is going to lead you into terrible places. And it's going to cause you to say things that you don't mean to say. And it's going to cause you to, to, to justify yourself when you are caught in your actions. Don't follow your heart. It's one of the most ridiculous lies of the culture. Just, you know, follow my heart. Don't follow your heart. Give your heart to Jesus. And when you give your heart to Jesus, he will give you a new heart. 
And that new heart will overflow into new life and will be evident by the words in which you speak and the words that you say. And so here's what Jesus did. Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus entered in this world and he lived the perfect life that none of us ever could. And if you think about it, Jesus never had to apologize for anything. Jesus never had to take back something that he said. Jesus never made a mistake. Jesus never had a bad day and just had a moment. And Jesus never sinned in a way that he had to take back something that he said. Everywhere he went, he loved, he blessed, he spoke life, he preached the Bible, he encouraged other people. Everywhere he went, he was the blessing of God revealed in this world. And we arrested him, we captured him, we crucified him. And on the cross, Jesus became the curse. He carried the weight of the words in the world on that cross. And as people gathered around him at that cross, they said, crucify, crucify. They shout at him. They spit on him. They jeered him. They mocked him. And he became the curse on that cross. And you know what the last words Jesus said was? The last words Jesus spoke. Father, forgive them. And on the cross, he became the curse so that way we can receive the blessings of God. So I want to be your pastor. And I want to help serve you. And I would be remiss if all we did was talk about the source and we never got to the symptoms. If we never got to the heart of the matter, I wouldn't really be doing my job as your pastor. And I love you. And I want to help you to discover what's really going on deeper inside of you. So I'm going to ask a series of reflective questions. And I want you to consider these. Maybe talk with your wife. Maybe talk with your husband. Maybe in your community group you can get together and you can discuss. Or maybe with a Christian coworker. I want you to ask yourself these reflective questions and see what's really going on. So my first question is this. How is your heart? Seriously, honestly. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to think I'm a church. I have to... How is your heart? Are you angry? Are you resentful? Are you, are you bitter? You think, I'm not angry. I just freak out sometimes. No. Are, are you angry? Are you hurt? Are you wounded? If so, harboring and holding that in, that's a curse. That's not the way that God has for you to live. So instead, we need to receive the blessings of God. And the blessings of God is a new heart, with a new nature, with a new identity, with a new destiny, new desires. So how is your heart? Is it, is it new? Is it, is it growing? Is it loving? Is it producing holiness in your life? Is it evident? Don't hold on to the curses when Jesus has given us the blessing. Second question I'd say is, who do you need to forgive? Who's that person or those people that have said something so hurtful, so wrong, so painful, and you think, I can't forgive them. That what they've done is so wrong and bad, I can't forgive them. 
And if I do forgive them, they'll be getting away with it. There needs to be justice. They need to be held accountable. I can't forgive them. That's a curse. Jesus gives blessings. And Jesus would tell you, but I forgive you. That what you did to me, I died for. And so, yeah, I know the pain. I know the hurt because I suffered for that. You say, Jesus, they'll get away with it. He'd say, no, they don't get away with anything. I hold all accountable. I know all. I see all. I judge all. They will be held accountable, and they won't get away with it. And there will be justice, but that's my job. Jesus would tell you, my job is to judge. Your job is to love. It's one of the hardest lessons for us to learn, especially around the area of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness doesn't hurt the other person. Unforgiveness hurts you. The other person, they just walk around. My teacher probably never even thought about me again. But I've held on to that for years. See, unforgiveness doesn't hurt the other person. Unforgiveness really just hurts you. And Jesus says, I have a great blessing for you. It's called forgiveness. And it brings healing to all your hurts. So who do you need to forgive? Number three, what lies are you believing? I'm worthless. I'm terrible. I'm unloving. I'm unloved. I'm unforgivable. Nobody wants me around anyway. I'm not welcome here. It's a curse. But Jesus would tell you that you are loved and you are welcomed and that I came and I gave my life for you and I died and so you do have value because you're made in my image and you are fearfully and wonderfully made and you are created in a way that I speak life into you. I speak truth into you. So what lies are you believing? Some of those old lies, someone might have said it, but every single day that's just Satan whispering it in your ear. We overcome the lies of the enemy through the word of God. And this is why it's so important for us to get the word in our hearts because the word is truth and will overflow into our life, which is number four. Who speaks life into you? Think, I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody's help. I can do it on my own. People just let me down. I've read some books and I can just have a personal relationship with Jesus and I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody. Let me tell you this. Isolation, loneliness, rejection, clear sign of a broken heart. That's exactly what that is. And that's a curse. You weren't created to do life alone. It's the reason that God has given me as your pastor. This is the reason that God has given us as the church. This is the reason that God has given us community groups and serve team and Christian friends and, and counselors so they can speak life into you so you can grow in everything that God has for you. So my question is, who speaks life into you? I'll tell you what, one of the biggest blessings in my life are friends who speak life into me. My last question is this. What are you going to do? Now, you can hear this, and you can reject this, and you can think, well, I'm just going to go on, and I'm going to live my life, but your heart's going to be hard, your heart's going to be callous, and your conscience will be seared. And you can reject this, and you can walk in a curse, or you can receive this, and you can repent of your sin, and you can experience the blessings of God. Friends, I love you, and I, I want the best for you, and I want you to receive the blessings of God. So here's what I'm going to do as we close. Today, a lot of my sermon was preached to me. But I can tell that there's people who need to respond. So I'm going to 
step down from the stage. I'm going to kneel at the altar, and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to invite you to join me, and we can pray for one another. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.